Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 297. Seven. 297. Yeah, I was gone for the last one. That's why uh-huh. I'm <laughs> uh, This is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Jay LaCroix. And our episode name is... Linux 420 Compilate. Compilate, yeah. It's out, the 420 kernel. That's what Linus gave us for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Surprised he didn't go with 5.0 because it's too many numbers, as he likes to say. Yeah, I don't know when it's going to 5.0. I know there was an article about it a while ago. There was some opinion about it, so, yeah. Seems like the number doesn't really <laughs> matter all that much anymore. Yeah, yeah. I know when they went to 4.0, it was just, eh, it felt like moving to 4.0. Yeah. Was that the same with 3, I think, wasn't it, or am I not? Or was 3 a big uh, feature release? 3 was the big feature release. That's right, yeah. Uh, and there's not... There's um, Ryzen support, some uh, gaming support uh, related things. I say like GPU. I say gaming, but it's GPU uh, and Ryzen updates and enhancements. So I know that's where um, the the big deal about the kernel is. I didn't read every little rat of detail. Uh, still no WireGuard. I think that's not coming till four two two. That's when the WireGuard VPN. Someone said there's hmm. a pull request. That's uh, it's going to be a future thing in there, but a lot of people are looking forward to that. And uh, Phil pointed out that WireGuard might be coming to the BSD kernel as well. So that's hmm. exciting because wow. there is the person has some notes on uh, that side of it. So that's interesting. I, I was reading some articles on that uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, because it was still considered in testing mm-hmm. and not. Uh, not like a stable release, then a lot of the BSDs were waiting to see what was going to happen with it. Yeah, I think we're probably at least another year out before we see WireGuard in the market. Um, yeah. OpenVPN is still king. It's just WireGuard's the first time we've seen a competitor for OpenVPN. That's what makes it interesting. Because right. uh, right. OpenVPN, it just it solves so many problems of cutting through double NAT, triple NAT, weird firewall rules. Um, and then, of course, there's the controversial, but if you're not familiar with, uh, I think it's called OpenVPN XOR Patch. Um, XOR mm-hmm. Patch is an uh, add-on for OpenVPN or a different compile switch. I'm not super clear on how it's implemented, um, but it's for hiding from DPI networks. Uh, so people in foreign countries that have great firewalls, mm-hmm. it gets around them. It's a, oh. basically an obfuscation obs- of the OpenVPN protocol to make it look like um, HTTPS Tra- uh, traversal. So, oh, yeah? yeah, it makes it, it basically disguises itself as that without, um, I don't know why it's not accepted in the upstream. I'm not sure what differences it does because there's a page on it. I started reading. I'm like, that's interesting because someone asked me if it was supported in PFSense, which led me down the research rabbit hole. Um, there's like, apparently, because it's an unofficial support, PFSense won't support it. It's like, they're like, no. It's, but then OpenSense mm. does. So if you're looking for a reason to use OpenSense, apparently they're mm. willing to put it in there. I don't know if there's yeah. a security risk or things like that in it, but That's I'm keeping an eye on OpenSense. Like, yeah, not sure how I feel yet. I so my I've talked to in the place that we just put in the PFSense uh, at scale. They are using OpenSense and wanted to go to PFSense because they said it's like they call it PFSense Light. They said it just mm. it has a lot of limitations. It's just not bad. It's a good firewall, but it doesn't seem to do everything that PFSense does and frequent updates. Fine for a home lab user, hard for a commercial enterprise going, oh, great, another firewall update. That's not what I ever like to say. Right. <laughs> right. Anyways, uh, Tony, you've been gone for a minute. How's, how's life been? Yeah, it's good. Uh, I missed the last show because I was out at my parents' house. Uh, we are doing Christmas uh, for my family, and uh, we had like 25 people in the house and mm. all exchanging gifts and dinner and it was nice 
Cool. Uh, All that fun stuff. Yeah. Tech projects? Or all um, Christmas projects. <laughs> well, so I have a long-term tech project. It's still my free NAS. Okay. I figured out what's happening. Ooh. And I'm pretty sure I, I've done the right thing with moving to a different server. Hmm. Because all my drives, except for the one that was not installed in the old one, are all uh, showing massive smart air reads and smarts <coughs> like reporting all sorts of issues. And they're all marked as degraded and free NAS and so my long-term project is to save money so I can buy six new drives and replace them all neat yeah <laughs> so did the heat sink work out for you no actually the heat sink uh didn't uh screw down like it was oh. uh, the wrong whole uh pattern but what I did is I took the fans off and the current heat sinks I had I took wire and wire strapped them onto it. Actually, oh, wow. I have a picture somewhere I could show you. It's uh, it actually works pretty good. I was really surprised. Wow. Um, yeah, I first did it just as a test to see, you know, is it going to work, and um, and it kept my CPUs under fifty uh, Celsius. Nice. Yeah, I think it like at idle, it, it runs at like forty three Celsius, and when I'm so far, I've maxed it out, but it, it's having a hard time maxing out because of all the read errors on the drives. But uh, it'll it maxes at like sixty eight Celsius, hmm. and you know, and and if you're not familiar with uh, processors or, or even these Xeons, so they they can go up to over eighty Celsius Safely? without issues. Okay. Yeah, I think it's when you hit eighty six or 88 somewhere in there is when it starts to be like this is the danger zone i just checked my laptop i know it's not a server processor it's 82 that's considered high and critical is 100 on mine Hmm. yeah yeah that sounds probably similar better to keep them cool though yeah (laughs) exactly uh so the issue is though is that motherboard that i bought Mm -hmm. has no uh fan control on it you can't slow down the fans on it oh and uh, I'm like, how can a server board not have it? I, I j- it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why. Can you get one of those temperature sensing fans that have that module built right in? Or uh, Well, because it's it's a rack mount case, you have to have the fans that fit it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to okay. do is buy the controller module that uh, it actually replaces the CD drive. It goes oh. in there because I don't need the CD. Yeah, or, nobody or needs it's that actually anymore. a tape drive that's in there. I don't need that. So, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so it uh, it's going to have a, a, a temp sensor. I'm going to stick like on the hard drives, and then there's two fans that are run by the hard drives, and then it'll run six fans. So put one in each of the processors and one for the, the uh, uh, heat sink and stuff, or for the uh, power supplies, um, hmm. and then it'll it'll watch the temps and slow down the fans. And, Cool. But in the meantime, it's driving my wife crazy because uh, <laughs> they're running at six thousand RPM oh. next to the dish or the clothes washer. Oh, uh, and uh, so yeah. I've been doing most of the laundry recently. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Yeah, so you can appease it. Just do the laundry, and everybody's happy. <laughs> that's right. I'm sure it's not louder than the laundry. So uh, it is. Oh, actually. okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's wow. really loud. But that's all in your basement still, so right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, but then the other issue is it's in my basement. There's uh-huh. no sound dampening going to the second oh. floor, and it's directly under my bed. All right, go grab some foam, stick it in the ceiling, <laughs> right. uh, in your joists, and <laughs> yeah. 
build build a quiet cage for the server. Yeah. Li- liquid cooled, that's the way to go. We've talked about I've been liquid. thinking about that too. Building yeah. a liquid cooled server. Yeah. Mm. I actually I have a liquid cooled desktop. That's what I my love my liquid cooled. It's great. It just, there's no noise in my office at all, so That's nice. Even when yeah. I'm rendering video, it just I hear the pump kick on pretty decently when I'm rendering video, but it's not so loud that it. Yeah, is I, I'm off-putting. aware of it, but it doesn't pick up. Uh, it's not ambient enough to even the, for my microphone to pick it up while I'm recording. Because mm-hmm. I'm recording, it stresses my processor a little bit doing the encoding, um, and I'll hear the pump. Like I know it's on, but it doesn't even show up on the level. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's like that real low ambient. It's a really quiet low nice. noise. Yeah. Ah. Uh, anyway, so that's what's been going on with me. Cool. Uh, I'm glad you're getting, getting solved. Um, I'll I'll just jump in. I uh, if anyone has followed me on Facebook or some of the social media I posted, I've had a giant giant hole in my backyard that was about uh, 30 feet wide and 18 feet deep um, to fix my sewer line. So that's been the nightmare that is that. Mm. <laughs> Good news is the hole's filled in. My yard is now missing because there's no grass anymore. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was my um, non-tech. Uh, nightmare I had to deal with. It became fascinating to watch. I learned about what it takes to dig a hole that big. And, they, you know, they bring up like a semi with a caterpillar that drives across your lawn. And Yeah. You know. So I've, I've looked at, you know, I, I know other people have had the same problem. Mm-hmm. But I've never heard them digging, what is it, 20 feet deep? Right. Um, this is a unusual case of my sewer happened. This is what the they came out and we found the main line uh, mm-hmm. because this, in the neighbor's yard is a tap. So we opened up the tap and they go down there and they measure it and they go, "Yep." And they showed me I was in. I, w- I didn't go down the hole because um, it's well, it's not a place you want to go. Right. Um, and they didn't have to go down there. They just had a really big measuring stick and we measured it. The bottom of the hole is 17 feet down. And Jeez. you have to dig all the way down to the base because of the way it comes in the pipe because they encase it in cement and they got to use a jackhammer to cut a hole in it. Because when you replace the pipe, you go from a 4-inch, which was code in the 50s or 60s whenever this pipe was put in with those clay pipes, to 8-inch. That's code for 2018. Mm. Mm. So you can't just fix it. There's no once – once it's broke, you have to do it to code of 2018. Yeah. So – Good news is it's the code. Bad news is I started as the hole kept getting bigger. I started measuring it in dollars. <laughs> so, <laughs> how big is it now? About this much? Because <laughs> yeah, they, these guys work thirteen hour shifts digging that hole. They they work hard and they work fast. They worked in the rain. They didn't stop. They worked like thirteen fourteen hours and a new shift would come in um, and operate the stuff. So they were there like eighteen hours the first time. They, they didn't stop till four in the morning. Started in, in the daytime at four in the morning. I heard a tap on the window because it was a problem they ran into and he needed to consult city engineering because um, they found what was a potential problem. So I had to wait for engineers the next morning to come out. And mm. Yeah, it just it took four days of it was supposed to be a one day uh, dig and fill. Oh wow! So yeah, the the, the immensity. I flew my drone into the hole, like <laughs> deeply, because I'm like it's the only way you can get perspective on this thing. Wow. <laughs> So, yeah, um, tech-related, and I have a spot for our uh, friends here that's listening to the SMLR. Um, I set up a Discord server and uh, all the hosting and everything related to it for my Lawrence Systems YouTube channel, and a lot of people have joined. It's been exciting. Um, It's free to join and whatnot, but I set a section so we can post some of the SMLR things uh, and 
So anyone who wants to, if the, if you want to have a discussion with any of us or talk in depth about there, kind of easier. I mean, email's nice, but it the the problem I've always had with email, and this is the problem I'm running into in my YouTube channel, is so many people email me, and I know the question that they're asking would be a is a good question that would be other people would be interested in. Mm-hmm. And right away, we turned into some good firewall discussion, policy routing discussions. There's already like a ton of posts on there, which has got me really excited. I'm answering them as fast as I can, but I don't mind answering them as opposed to replying to email. Because I've, I've actually copy-pasted because the three people will email me about a video, the exact same question. Oh, yeah. Because uh, like, hey, Tom, I, I didn't understand one concept of it. So now yeah. I can explain it once. Yeah, I've been reading through some of them, and uh, there was one that I, I read through, it actually, and it did help me right away. Because it was talking about uh, the PFSense upgrade and Avahi, yeah. mm-hmm. the MDNS yes. proxy. And uh, they're saying it stopped working. Yep. And you said just uh, disable it and then re-enable it. And that fixes it. Yeah. Because so. uh, the config file gets broken, and when you disable and re-enable it, it rewrites the config file without whatever broke. I don't know what parameters broke, but I know how to fix it. <laughs> yeah, so I was able to use it right yeah. away. And then now, That's because cool. it's all indexed by Google, if someone searches how to fix the Avahi thing, it actually, I've been testing this. We're already showing up in the search results really? for these things. Nice. So <laughs> we're, because I have all the bots enabled. I did a lot. There's a lot of, like, tuning and little back-end work you have to do to make all this work. Uh, Discourse is open source. It's uh, Linux Foundation uses it and so does many many other uh open source community projects for discussion it's great uh it's built on a very complex set of node.js redis uh, ruby on rails and it's really hard Mm. to compile but don't worry folks they have a docker installer with a yaml file really easy to do uh all you do Mm. when you want to update it you just do git pull and you pull the new version, and then you run edit your YAML file, and then they have they have a deployment tool that re-updates it in itself, and it moves the database when it builds a new Docker image. It copies the database from the old one to the new one, and away you go. Nice. Uh, plus, they support data liberation. Uh, you can easily download a SQL file. Uh, just click a button, and it it's actually to go a step further. It has an auto backup, so you can actually uh, set a destination, and it'll auto backup that on a schedule and send it to another server, like an S3 bucket, if you want. Oh yeah. So you can have backups, which I like because one of the yeah. other forum softwares look like it was hard to get data into it, hard to get data out of it. Um, or and then the, the proprietary hosting platforms, yeah, they they own all your data. Right. As long as you pay fees, whatever their fees are, you you have your data, but there's no way to export it back out. So exactly. Yep, so that's, uh, that's going well. Um, I did a review of Zabbix, and uh, that got a lot of views. So that's been fun. I've been learning a lot of Zabbix. It, it's funny because my brief overview of Zabbix is about, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes long. And I see brief overview because that still doesn't touch on how many features it has. So it's a rabbit hole. It's If you're looking for an easy thing to do, don't do Zabbix. But if you're looking for a very robust solution to monitoring, do Zabbix. <laughs> It's like Nagios. Yeah, There's so a learning curve. Uh, Jay's a Nagios guy, I know. Yeah. Okay, so Zabbix is a, a monitoring system? Yes. Yeah. A uh, monitoring system, will, it will monitor both Windows servers and um, Linux servers. I'm specifically monitoring all my infrastructure, including, uh, for example, my Discourse uh, uh, server for my um, forums. And it does uh, like SNMP monitoring and stuff. It does too, right? SNMP monitoring. It's got just tons and tons of open source templates. This is what's cool. It's got a template system, so you can you could actually go look, and you'll probably find whatever Cisco device you have. You'll find a template for it. Forty gate. All your major, your big guys that are in there. Your uh, commercially supported firewalls, and then other firewalls like my favorite PFSense got a Zabbix module in it because they have their own tools. So instead of relying on SNMP, which has limited amounts of data, um, you can use the Zabbix 
uh, tools directly, the Zabbix monitoring daemon, and it's plugged right into PFSense. It gives you all the stats right out of PFSense into a nice, nice dashboard, and there's a whole template for this. So mm. um, those at least are easy to set up. It's just all the customizing because there's so many things you can customize. Like, see, you know, you've made a game out of customization. And you're like three hours later, I got one dashboard done. Because <laughs> <laughs> you start pixel peeping. You start dragging things around and make sure every server is lined up two pixels apart so you can get the graph exactly. It's <laughs> They give you too many buttons, all right? <laughs> so if you geek out, on it you can spend some time on it but it's a great system um other than that uh what else i don't think there's any other tech projects other than i got to do some videos on it but we did a 300 uh well it came out to be 283 installed um unify access points so it was probably one of the larger single wi-fi mm-hmm. projects we've done that's just a lot it's encompassing an entire campus across three buildings with fiber interconnects between them powered switches and like i said almost 300 access points deployed so nice. i gotta do i'll do a debriefing um on that one because there's some things that you need to know of how to do unify at scale yeah <laughs> and tom learned them <laughs> <laughs> At the client, who was cool because I told him this was a large job. He understood we conceptually knew how to do it. We, he knew there'd be some tuning issues. Mm-hmm. And we worked through them. It took me about an hour. Also, uh, I got to do a separate video. So we installed in NetGate uh, 7100, one of their commercial ones. They have a really weird back-end config. Uh, so I got to do some documentation for people. It's the way you have to do double VLAN tagging inside of PFSense only on their commercial hardware like that. It's a unique problem feature to PFSense. So I have to do a video on that. Um, it's what weird. Is, what is double VLAN tagging? That's, I don't know how to describe it other than double VLAN tagging. Basically, the, there are two static VLANs assigned inside of PFSense when you buy their hardware. It's not something you have in the normal load of PFSense. So if you load PFSense on anything, this doesn't exist. They have a... Two, a pair of 2.5 gig Marvel chips that are 2.5 gig backplane that connects to PFSense. But we have eight ports and then two SFP ports giving us 10 ports altogether. How do you take two and turn it into eight? You create weird backend VLANs. And what I didn't realize is when I was creating the VLANs, you also have to uh, take those VLANs and tag them in the pair of ports that are like hidden from you, but they're open in the, it's, uh, mm. it's almost like you need to see a screenshot of how you have to check boxes because yeah. you have to tag those and any VLAN you add won't come out as a trunk port unless you tag it, the 2.5 gig cards and a pair and you tag them. When you tag them, it does it. So it's almost like a router on a stick if you've ever done that. Yeah. It works very in a similar way. Um, but that's how they're commercially their 7100 is. It's not necessarily a bad thing once you understand that you have to check. You create the VLAN like you normally do, but then you go to a – there's an extra um, thing called switch port. You just switch port and you just check two boxes and it fixes it. It's easy, but for every VLAN you add, you have to check the two boxes on each one you add to add it to those <clears> so it trunks out the other ones. If not, they don't exist. It's – yeah, it was a – Sounds like port channeling to me. It might be, yeah. I'm sure there's a, it probably has a different name and different, uh, it's probably like port channeling, but you just have to tag these so it can carry that VLAN traffic out to the um, eight port switch that's on it. Okay. It's weird. It's easy, mm-hmm. but I um, I want to share some screenshots probably in my forum because someone probably has these. Someone probably has this problem, and their documentation doesn't truly – it tells you what to do verbally but does not give you a clear screenshot of exactly what it looks like. So we didn't know which boxes to have checked. Mm. 
and, and when you see it, it's, it is a series of check boxes. That's the problem. Yeah. So verbally telling me check the boxes and tag it is what it says. That doesn't represent how, how does it need to look? Mm. And I found someone who shared how it looked for something else they were doing. I'm like, I get it now. Check these boxes. Put the little, there's a little T you have to put next to them. Mm. It, it's, it's better described visually. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but that's it. That's all my projects um, for now. So, all right. Yeah, I got update free NAS. That's my to do list today or tomorrow. There's uh, new updates for those of you that don't know. If you haven't done it, I've I'm done s- it. I'm still on eleven. What eleven one? There's U six. If you're on yeah. eleven one, is out and um, eleven two. It's a minor update only if you're using uh, the Apple sharing. There's mm-hmm. a security flaw they found in that. I never use it, so I'm not. It's not like an urgent thing for me to do, but if you're mm-hmm. using Apple sharing, apparently there's a flaw in it. So they have a emergency out of band release that just updates that module. If I understood the, oh, the RADA properly, so that's all it was. I did. I did get an update. I did do it. Yeah. Notice nothing. You, you you're in, bad, if you don't so. use Apple, then your life's probably better, anyways. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Jay? So Besides I've been new videos. Oh God, I've been so deep in YouTube. <laughs> I I I've been releasing a lot more videos than normal. And I have like probably four more videos I haven't even finished editing yet that'll that'll be coming up. I have videos scheduled through the ninth of January already, not counting the ones that I've already edited and put up there. Right. So I'm kind of just trying to figure out what the audience wants. I'm just kind of re-engineering it just to try to make sure I know what people want to see. And I'm looking at the analytics and views so I can try to figure out what everyone is interested and in. You're doing some more distro reviews too, right? That's a few yeah. of my team posted. So that's if, if you're looking for distro reviews, because that's always uh, there's always a bunch of people distro hopping. So right. definitely go check out Jay's channel. We'll leave a link in the show notes to it. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a lot of distro reviews. And what's interesting to me is that the distro reviews, I looked at the history, have always had way more views than tutorials, which is very surprising to me because uh, the tutorials, I, I would think, are something that more people would want to watch because it's instructional and they, they learn more. But um, it's it's clear that people want to see reviews, so I'm doing more reviews. And another thing I started was a first impressions type of review where I get a distribution I've never used before and literally try it for the very first time and record my reactions as I go through it. So it's basically kind of like I don't know, I know very little about the distro going into it and then I record my reactions and I'm just kind of seeing if there's even like an appeal here because I might stop doing it if nobody likes it. But I was just looking at a video on my channel, the Debian 10 testing first impressions video. Um, It looks like a 414% increase in watch time in minutes. Mm. So I don't, I think it's safe mm-hmm. to say that maybe some people like it. And later today, I have my first impressions video for MX Linux. It's going to be like within around the same time this video, or I mean, this, um, this recording goes live. My MX uh, first impressions video will be up. And I, I think there's a lot of it is because, um, you are good at configuration management, so blowing away a machine, you can have it restored in a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, and some people, myself included, I'm limited good at it. I'm, I'm kind of an amateur at it, so it's nice to watch someone else review a distro before I blow away my desktop. Right. It causes me more pain than it causes you because I haven't taken the time to learn yeah. config management. <laughs> well, that's true, but, but another thing, too, is that I have dedicated my Lemur laptop to being my distro okay. testing machine that will never have any data on it so i'm just gonna 
you know, it's it's an older machine, and rather than just put it to pasture, it's an i7, an older i7, but it's still an i7. Yeah. 512 gig SSD, it's not bad. It's a decent machine. So I just use that one from now on. I was blowing away my main daily driver for the first part of it because I was in between distros anyway, so it didn't really matter. But now that I've settled... I'm I'm using the lemur for all videos going forward, and and they're going to be released out of order. So at one video you're seeing my Galago Pro, and next video you're seeing the lemur because I'm I'm not quite releasing them in order. But I will say just to kind of give some of it away, the MX Linux distribution was a very pleasant surprise. Like I wasn't expecting much when I went into it because I'm thinking, oh gee, another distribution, you know, which I do get excited about it. But it's like, how many do we need that are based on Debian or what have you? I looked at DistroWatch and I noticed it was at the time I looked number three, which I don't remember seeing it on the top <laughs> five, let alone top three. I'm like, where did this come from? So. I'm like, okay, I'll check it out. And apparently it's based on Debian Stable, which I don't really like Debian Stable for workstations or laptops. I do like it for servers quite a bit. I, I just don't feel like they put a lot of uh, polish on the desktop spins. People do use it successfully, but sta- Debian Stable has an older kernel. Hardware support can be kind of sketchy. But they literally give you, with MX Linux, a brand-new kernel, so they update it to a, a kernel that's not the Debian kernel, but it's a newer one. And you get such control over everything. Like I go into the config utility, and I talk about this in the video. Uh, one of the first things I see where you go to enable the dark theme is there's a checkbox that says implement the Firefox dark theme fix, which I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't have to do that manually. Like there's a CSS file you have to drop in Firefox so that the um, the basic the input fields don't have like dark background and dark text when you oh. go to a um it's a firefox problem and it's not even specific to linux it's all all platforms with the dark thing okay. have this issue but the workaround is to um grab this css file or there's also an, a firefox add-on you can use and you drop it in your profile folder and it fixes the problem but in their config utility they basically have that as a checkbox in addition to that when you go into the utility for the first time you get a message saying something like, this is the first time you're using the config utility. So we backed up all your dot files into this hidden directory just in case. And then you go in there, start playing around with it, and there's literally a checkbox to restore your dot files in case you mess something up. They give you all kinds of tweaks and configs. It's just It just blew me away. I'm like, wow, mm. this, is, this is, they really get the struggles that Linux users have, and they implement the fixes in the, um, in the settings. So not only do they take a distro that's not very friendly to desktops and laptops they've made it friendly and then they give you like power user level control over pretty much everything oh, nice so i like it i i don't know if i'm going to use it as my main because i really like pop os but they did a really good job so i have a video for that coming up and another thing i did is i've been doing a deep dive into proxmox because i'm trying to find out if there's a um audience for that on my channel and what i want to do is a series of proxmox videos I don't know when I'm going to have them done. I think they'd be good, though. A lot of yeah. people ask me about it. I just, because I'm all in on Zen server, we have clients running it, I'm running it. And so it's not something I have an interest in diving into. But there seems to be at least a lot of yeah. requests I get for it. Well, I, I actually, um, my, my publisher plug uh, is having, a, I don't know if it's still on, but they have like a $5 sale for all the ebooks. So I bought a book about Proxmox. And 
it basically is Mastering Proxmox, I think is the name of it. And it was a pretty good book. It's a little out of date because Proxmox moves kind of fast. So some of the things they say, you can't do this in the GUI, not true, because I can do it in the GUI, which leads me to believe they've added certain things to it. But um, I couldn't put the book down. I literally read almost every chapter in a week, like the whole, nice. the whole thing. I just liked the book was great. So I read it. And then learn more about Proxmox than I ever knew before. I'm like, I'm ready to do some videos now. All so right. <laughs> I so I, I know more about that. And then in doing that, and this is the last thing I, I'll mention, is I was working on setting up a Ubuntu 18.04 template. And I learned a lot more about 18.04. And, you know, this is coming from the guy who wrote the book on it. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote, I mean, I ran into something that, wasn't anything that came up in the book because in in the book I didn't talk much about creating a template because it wasn't a Proxmox books book and this isn't necessarily specific to Proxmox because this is true of Zen server XCPNG whatever you're using because I was kind of and I mentioned this in a previous episode where I had cloned a VM and despite the MAC address being different on each they were all fighting over the same IP address. I'm like, how could this be? The MAC address is different. That's the first thing you check, the MAC address. And I did some more research on it because I ran into the problem again. And it has to do with the UUID or the machine ID in 1804 is used instead of the MAC address for a DHCP reservation or DHCP assignment. So it doesn't pass the MAC address to your DHCP server, it passes the machine ID. So when you clone the VM, the machine ID is the same in every single um, instance. Yeah, that and makes sense. There's like I think it's System D, Network D, which is what's doing this. I'm not 100% sure that's the culprit. It's something with that in Dbus. But long story made short, the fix for it is to empty the contents of Etsy machine ID. Don't delete it because I was spent like an hour trying to figure out why it won't regenerate it. It won't create the file, but if the file is empty, it'll generate a new machine ID at boot. Okay. As long, and this is where it gets a little more complicated, there's another file, var lib dbus machine ID, which includes the same content as Etsy machine ID. So if you empty out the one, but the other is still there, it'll fill Etsy machine ID with the one in varlib dbus machine ID. So the solution is you make varlib dbus machine ID, and I'll probably do a blog post about this and link to it in the show notes. So basically you just make that a symbolic link to Etsy machine ID, and then you leave Etsy machine ID empty. Then you create your template, and then when you spin up a new VM, it'll get a new machine ID, and then you won't have that problem. But it's just kind of one of those things that's weird that's not documented because you think like everybody would be like having an issue with this because cloning VMs is not a, a very small thing. I mean, lots of people do it. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I don't know if I'm the first one to complain about this, but it ended up being like three hours of my life. I'll never get back really <laughs> diving deep into this. But yeah, I'll have a I'll have a blog post about it um, at some point and put it in the show notes for if anyone else runs into this issue. Very cool. So that's all for me. All right, so now we're moving on to some listener feedback. Yeah, listener feedback. We've actually had a lot recently. Well, we asked like for it. it. No, yeah. we got it. We asked <laughs> That's for it. That's right. <laughs> I really appreciate it. It's almost unanimous, too. Yeah. So we've had quite a few people uh, email in about our um, music or our sound clips. and, um, <laughs> and yeah, So Jackie uh, emailed in saying that... Uh, 
that it, they're not missing them. They, they, you know, Jackie kind of likes it not being there. Yeah, a few people had mentioned that. Um, and the more, you know, I think about other podcasts and the way they do it, and I don't know anybody else now anymore that does they, really sound bites between things. So the uh, bumps, as they're called in the radio business, I I see them because I, I have been on radio shows a couple times because um, I've been on the Internet Advisor radio show, and they have an entire segment play. They've got, you know, an audio engineer behind the scenes, and they transition everything because they also do it before they transition back and forth to commercials. I think it's kind of a throwback to podcasting, just formatting itself from the radio, yeah. Um, but you're right. If you, I, I, I look in. I take my cues uh, a little bit from, in style wise. I like to look at Leo Laporte and the whole Twit Network. He's probably got like one of the best put together uh, tech podcasting networks out there. Um, and they don't really do. You know, they have an intro music, but that's it. So I don't. I, I, I think the intro music's good. I think the, I love our outro music. That is, no one said anything to change it. And I love it. So I think outro yeah. music is right, spot on. Yeah. Um, but the intros, I guess, do we leave our names in the intros in case it ever changes again? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's we like I to say we're a solid team, but you know. Yeah. Phil could get goggled up at a job at some other place and move away, or you know, something could happen and things change. And as long as there's a way to get them updated, I don't, I don't know yeah. what the process was in creating those because those were before I started. But well, the, oh, the so the sound bites were done actually by my uncle. Yeah. And uh, so I could just email and say, hey, we want this said, and, and then he does it. Uh, and then our intro and our outro uh, sound bites were done by uh, John uh, Miller, which is a listener of the show. And, okay. And uh, he was at, he's at all the Linux conferences in the area. But um, and maybe we just yeah. have one that doesn't announce our names in the intro. Just it, it also is one of those things we introduce our names. Like, for example, Phil's traveling today, so he's not um, here. And so it's. It, it becomes an well. It says all the names, but then so and so wasn't here. Just right. Just do intro music. Welcome yeah, to the I Sunday agree. Morning Linux Review. Da, 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 da. Yeah. As long as it's not too long, I think that's, in my opinion, as a podcast listener. I mean, I, I like those types of things, sound bites and things. As long as they're not jarring and sudden and yeah. off-putting. Not saying that ours were, but I'm just content is king. As long as people have good content to listen to and it doesn't take them a lot of time to get to the content. Um, if you've noticed too, there's a lot of, like the one I use, it lets me pick how many seconds in to start and I won't lie, I skip intros. There's a handful of podcasts that I just don't do the intro. Security now comes to mind. Yeah, like they have a long intro so I you can always start like 20 seconds in yeah. <laughs> or 30 seconds in and one of them is three <laughs> minutes in because <laughs> I don't know what they, they just like three minutes of... Have you ever listened to... Um... One of the 2600 podcasts, they have a 10-minute intro yeah. song. It's like, I know. what is what yeah. is the deal with that this? That's really? a perfect example wow. of it. Yeah, it's uh, off the hook, right? I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. I don't listen to it very often. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've listened to it. It's a, it's a once in a while. But anyways, yeah. back to the listener feedback. Uh, we're we're listening to you listeners. <laughs> so That's right. We will make the changes and uh, focus on content, not on uh, bumps in between. Um, and I guess the music goes away. Yeah. We also heard from John. Yeah, John H. says that they, nobody's really liking the, the end music. Uh, and that's what we've heard from most everybody that's emailed in. Either they don't like it or they just skip past it. Uh, so that's the full song that I've been putting in at the end of the show. Um, so that, I think that's going to be one of the things that goes, goes away now. Um Yes, um, and I, uh, Scott emailed us so uh, he, from 24 Hour Web Machine. 
And he said, free NAS or true NAS? I'll address this one because the person did call me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got them the information they were looking for. True NAS was, it sounded like, out of their budget. Um, but they, I, we suggested free NAS on a Storinator as a solution for them. They had some video. I believe these uh, same person, but because it's, uh, it's a Michigan company, I did get a call from a Michigan company that needed. Um, well, it's like they were trying to find a deal on a used server, and I'm like, "What's your storage needs? Like 300 terabytes?" I'm like, "There's probably not a lot of used 300 terabyte servers floating around out there. <laughs> right. um, that that's not a used server purchase because that's 300 how 300 terabyte. Yeah, wow. Storinator makes them. Um, they're absolutely." Mm amazing but um yeah that the, there's not much of a because he heard we can get deals and use as we can but people are pulling out servers that are smaller to put in 300 terabyte storage <coughs> servers so no there's probably not a big used market for 300 terabytes of storage right <laughs> to me it sounded like you use you would have two servers one that does archiving of the old data and one that's your current like production data that's what they have they already have that much. This is they need three hundred terabytes for the cold storage. They already have a high level production data center. Wow. So it's the problem is they shoot um, a bunch of video footage at four K. And this mm-hmm. is the challenge if you're even a the YouTubers, um Linus did a really cool thing with Stornator. They did a sponsor and they did like KBHD and all the big YouTube people that shoot with epic red cameras because they shoot in eight K. Wow. And they are producing uh, in a year, they produce a couple hundred terabytes a year of data every year. Jeez. So they have that. Uh, Linus Tech Tips, he says they have a two petabyte uh, storage. Things they're at right now, something like that. He has a video because he's had to move to tape archiving for cold storage um, to do. He did a whole video about it. I mean, it's just oh, yeah. the problem is if you shoot high res, it scales. It's you know, 4K isn't just double; it's four times the video size file mm. of 1080. So <laughs> when you shoot 8K, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need a 300 terabyte server. Um, and for those that don't know, Google Storinator, they're awesome. Uh, they're really cool design. They're not like other RAID systems that put RAID in the front. They are storage pods, as they're called, and they uh, they're made by a company called 45 Drives. Uh, 45 drives in one box is their small box. They have boxes that hold a lot more than 45 drives. And they will run uh, many different operating systems that include FreeNAS. Um, and they'll mm-hmm. ship it to you with FreeNAS on it. Like, they're, they're specced and tested and certified to run FreeNAS. So th- that's uh, that answers that question. Uh, what else do we have in yeah, here? 45 drives at 540 terabyte. Yep. That's crazy. Yes, they're cool. Hmm. We, if if you're listening, forty five drives. We've tagged them in, t- in posts because we get tagged in posts about it, right. and we have clients that we support that use them. I really would love a demo unit. I've uh, said that you know if you guys want to mail one, I'll do a YouTube video on it. Problem is they're so well known already in the store in the high end storage market that they don't yeah. really feel the need to sponsor. Yeah, but they should because this guy didn't know about them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Anyways, nice. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, that's all I see. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, Brad and the hardware questions, we addressed those last time. So, yep, I think we're good on that. All right. So we've listened. We'll change the feedback. And we'll change based on the feedback. That's what I should say. Yeah. Not changing the feedback. <laughs> feedback is what it is. All right. Then we're moving on to distros. All right. You know, the one thing that came, it's at the top of the list just released today is OLPC. I thought this whole project was dead. I hadn't heard of anything. Before I seen that, I I would have agreed with you. (laughs) Yeah. And so if you don't know what it is, it's one laptop per child. 
And originally, it was these little laptops that the the goal was to build them for uh, for a hundred bucks, and then you would and uh, so what you'd do is you'd buy one, and you'd pay two hundred bucks, and they would ship one to a child out in a, a third world country. Mm. So for every one you buy, you know it's it's like that, and um, and I've seen like a couple people that had them, and they're they're like little kid friendly, and they're based on Fedora, and uh, it was really neat, and. Um, and I thought they were dead. I, I didn't think anything was happening for it. I hadn't heard of anything for like five years. And now they have a new release. Uh, it's based on Fedora 18. And they said it's just a, m- mainly a bunch of bug fixes and and updates. Uh, what is the current Fedora release? Isn't it like 23 or something? 29. 29? Yeah, yep. so this is really old, Fedora 18. Wow. That is, that is pretty far behind. Yeah. But um, but you know what's really cool is uh, they had mesh networking built into it, really. So they could have one access oh, point. That's pretty cool. And then like you know, and then uh, they would all just mesh together, so everybody would have internet access, even though if you're far away from the access point. Yeah, so that was really cool. What's interesting is uh, Libre Elec, a minimal Linux distribution for running the Kodi Media Center. That's a lot of people do get into that. Um, it's it's one of those weird shifts we're seeing in the market, I think, of we're the people that are run things like this, but the younger generation has no concept of owning media. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about it. Like, like, they don't have a concept. Like, what do you mean you bought CDs or something <laughs> like that? So I think it's I, – I, I worry a little bit. I'm, I'm happy to see development in it, but I worry about the future because there's not a um, concept of ownership. And, of course, then you're like, oh, that show on Netflix is now gone. I liked it, but now I can't watch it ever yeah. again. I still haven't forgiven them for removing Doctor Who off of Netflix. I know. You know, that, w- that was just totally rude. I know, so now I can't watch Doctor Who unless <laughs> right. I have an entire Whovian library. <laughs> I may or may not have that. We may or may not all have that, so that's always been a uh, thing. So it's interesting to see that as a development. I know if you spend any time in Reddit talking in the data hoarders, most of the challenges they have, and I know from even my YouTube audience, it's if you ask, what are you doing with all those you know, 200 terabytes if they're not a YouTuber? Well, mm, yeah. <laughs> it could be. it might be on our Plex server. <laughs> Mm-hmm. or one of the other media servers out there. So it's good to see that they're still uh, developing that. I am not a expert at this, but the Rancher OS project has an update. Um, I've seen that for, that's, if I'm not mistaken, that's for running all the uh, d- uh, Docker and containerized stuff. Isn't that what Rancher does? Yeah. I yeah. haven't used it, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, it's an OS made for managing all of that. Uh, and this is what's weird. It's got some experimental ARM server support in there. And at the last uh, meeting, someone had said they were, they were wondering if XCP, because Zen Server, actually, I guess I didn't know this. He already knew it. Zen Server worked in ARM, but they didn't mm-hmm. know if XCP and G compiled for ARM because they were running. And I, this is another discussion I've seen uh, recently. There's these ARM data centers opening up. Yeah. So um, that's going to be interesting. I guess there's some... You know, said the last meeting. Yeah, that the last uh, uh, the one the mug mug meeting. Oh, okay. Yeah, one of the person that they're running a bunch of ARM systems and they're looking for ARM virtualization platforms uh, mm. to help dev all the ARM things that they're building. I think they worked in the SCADA market, like they were developing some type of. That's right. I'm hearing that. Yeah. That. Yeah. Uh, if you're not familiar with SCADA, that's like your real time for running machines and monitoring systems and stuff like that. And ARM lends itself easy to that. It's low powered, easy to uh, manage things like that. You could so. build your own 
ARM data center, right? You just build, just buy a bunch of ARM servers. Yeah, <laughs> just get like you know a Raspberry Pi server. And no, I mean don't actually don't they have like server like rack mount servers that are ARM yeah. based? Yeah, yep. just buy them. Matter of fact, they're yeah. made by AMD. Think System Seventy Six, mm. at, at least where they were talking about selling one. I don't know if they ever did. I didn't really um, look into it. But. There's been more and more talk about ARM laptops uh, and things like that too. So, you know, it's not year of the Linux desktop, but it might be year of the ARM in 2019. So yeah. we're seeing. Hey, I thought I'm I'm ready for it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Just a few years ago, it seemed like Atom was the thing. You know, the Atom processors. Yeah, yeah, and, the low-powered Atoms. But there's so many legacy limitations to x86, and once you remove that x86 uh, legacy and move uh, to, like, ARM, and Linux, of course, cross-compiles easily to it, mm-hmm. there's a lot of advantages you get and uh, things like that. So it's going to be interesting. I think we're going to see a lot more of that development. I do, too. It looks like we have a new release of Open Mandriva, which, to be honest, I didn't even know that this existed because um, Magia, Magia, however you're supposed to say that, is, mm-hmm. is the one that most of the Mandri- Mandriva users went to. But, yeah, maybe I just wasn't paying attention because this re- this distro has been out now for, it's the fourth release. But Alpha 1, actually, it's not even a you know final version. But when I looked at the screenshot, it kind of did remind me of, like, Mandrake slash Mandriva, Mm. back in the day so it's cool to see some kind of continuation of that i've had some fond memories of using that distribution quite a while ago and to see it continue is pretty cool so that was pretty neat and i also saw chakra has a new release 2019.01 which um you you mentioned olpc not knowing that that was still alive i didn't know chakra was still alive because i remember it as being the um, like an Arch Linux KDE spin where you could have basically an Arch Linux system on KDE set up with an installer and everything. I thought the project folded and, and went away, and it, I guess it kind of did. And I'm not sure if it's still based on Arch now. I'm pretty sure it's not because it's saying that's a half-rolling model. So um, that's pretty interesting to see that that's, that project is still around and yeah, they have a new release. You know, uh, before the show, we were talking about how we pronounce things. Yeah. I think it's funny. Uh, Mary used to be our our uh, source of truth for pronunciation because mm. she could pronounce like anything in any language. It was oh, just she, crazy. Yeah. yeah, she's really good at it, and uh, she's always this is uh, chakra. Is chakra. She always called it. Ah, and okay. So Thank it kind of makes that. sense because she would look at the name and, and it's like, well, it's got to be related to this, so that's got to be how you say it. Yeah, I, I think I'm fairly decent at some of the pronunciations, but some of the things I just kind of like veer off like uh, Gnome. I always say Gnome only because yeah. I just don't like saying Gnome. I know I'm it's supposed dumb. to say it the appropriate way because I'm making YouTube videos and my mentality was I'm going <laughs> to say it the way that the developers <laughs> want me to say it because I'm educating people and I'm making videos. Yeah. But then people on YouTube would roast me so bad at the beginning of my YouTube tenure mm-hmm. that I just gave in. I'm like, okay, everybody hates it, so I'm going to stop saying Gnome. I'll say Gnome. But, yeah, the pronunciations can be kind of um, interesting. I just got corrected on Entergos or Entergos. I still can't even say it yeah. right. Um, we could do a whole episode on how to pronounce things. Like, that would just be, we need, like, an expert. Yeah. We'll just bring Mary in. That'll be the comeback episode. <laughs> yeah. Mary teaches us how to pronounce things. All right. I'm open for it. <laughs> All right. That's it for the distros? I think so. Yep. All right. Moving on to the news. Who wants to start there? Yeah, news. You know, I've... I just found a few things, so I can go real quick, okay. and then you guys, they're security-related. Um, one is, did you hear about the spam that went around that was a bomb threat? Yes. It was a hoax. 
Yes. And uh, it was, it, at, when I first heard about it, they said it was all like Southeast Michigan people were getting it. But I'm reading this on other security it's things. It's global. And it's global, yeah. And uh, so I, I found an article that Krebs on security wrote about it. And um, at the, when I first heard about it, it was at work. Um, because I'm a firewall admin, they, uh, our security guys come to me and say, hey, you got to block this IP range. I'm like, well, it's already blocked. You know, it's coming from Russia. Oh, and yeah. uh, so we didn't get any of, any of the, the emails that came through at work. But on my personal email, I saw some of them come through. And I'm like, oh, that was it. So I thought that was interesting. I didn't see anyone who was using G Suite get it. Uh, but I think it was there. You know, this is one of those. Yeah, if you have some really good spam filtering, right. then and that's the way. Yeah, our clients on G Suite seem to be filtered extremely well. Our office clients, if they're using default Office 365, God help them. <laughs> they yeah. just get everything. Um, Microsoft doesn't do filtering. Microsoft seems to allow this kind of answer is like let third parties do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then there's always a debate which one's the best, and it's a big argument. Anyways, yeah, I've seen those. Um, they're, I think we're going to see more and more of it uh, that disrupts businesses, that cause problems and things like that. There's Once an attack vector works, it only exponentially gets bigger like they find like, an edge the attacks yeah, exactly. never like die down if there's a if there's a way to make money at it um they did really well with that ransom one they set up that says uh that would share your password back to you oh. it would you know say tony you use this uh, mm. password and it was a password you legit use because they would grab it out of one of the password dumps mm-hmm. and they would put it in there we know this password we have access to your machine we know you've been doing naughty things pay us a ransom or we'll tell everyone yeah no oh, that one was bad true. we did get customers that got that really <laughs> yes wow so what I thought was really interesting is on the, the very first uh, comment on his article mm-hmm. uh, about this is that he said it was the, the person is Chris, C-R-I-Z. Yeah. And it says, uh, I think it's best just to pay the bill. The world is is crazy. People are crazy. Be, pay. Uh, I don't, it's like just doesn't make sense. <laughs> then the the next reply to this says, Interpret will interpret your post to mean that you're one of the criminals in, involved in this extortion, <laughs> and then it just goes on and on about that yeah. roasting this guy. It's yeah, funny. we'll link to the Krebs article. It's always a fun read on there. Yeah. I like when crazy people comment on Krebs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then one other thing I I have the is uh, not really an article. It's a, a website that I've been watching on and off for the last couple of years, and uh, it's Sand Security. And they do, they're like a, a internationally known uh, yeah. security organization. And um, they do a tip of the day oh. for security awareness. Awareness. Uh, so there's a little, uh, there's an RSS feed. You can follow it if you want. And, and that's where I first heard about it, that um, they, uh, it was at my, uh, my college. They ran the feed on the homepage. Oh. Um, Anyway, so the two, or so today, the, um, or not not today. Obviously, it's a Sunday. They only do it Monday through Friday. Okay. But the uh, the tip of the day was two home computers, so one for the parents, one for the kids, kind yeah. of thing. Uh, the one for Christmas, it's clues you've been hacked. Oh. <laughs> you know, so it's just a, a short little things. You know, not not really in depth. No, but, but well, yeah, anything to keep people security aware is better. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's hard. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you can either go to our show notes or it's just uh, sans, 
and then tip of the day. Very cool. And that's what I have. All right. I have a couple quick things here. I found an article that shows or lists 23 gnome extensions, which are pretty much the go-tos for various things. The, there's, there's a lot of gnome extensions, but if you wanted to customize gnome, these are probably the best, um, most well-known extensions you can get. So I thought it was pretty cool to list out the extensions that are of value to GNOME users. The only thing I'll caution, though, is that extensions in GNOME should only be used if you absolutely need them or if you're okay with potentially some breakages because, obviously, if some of the extensions were no longer developed or not maintained, it could actually introduce some you know, instability in GNOME. Um, that being said, if you just have a few extensions, it's usually not a big problem. And if you needed some inspiration, there's a, a list of some good ones here that you might be able to uh, take benefit um, from. One of one of them that I like is the No Annoyance extension, which removes the um, window name is ready notification whenever you open a new window in GNOME, which personally I don't like that because if I hit... My shortcut, I have like super F for file manager. And if I hit that, it brings open the file manager. But I also get a notification that says, hey, your, notif- your window is ready. Well, I know it's ready. It's right on my screen. So mm-hmm. I don't need the notification on, on there that a window opened. So yeah. there's some extensions here that could be of value. As long as you don't go crazy and install everything, which will make it very unstable. If you, I think three to four extensions is usually a good rule of thumb there. That might be a good list for uh, GNOME users. And another interesting one that came in my news feed since the last time we recorded, the headline is CenturyLink blocked its customer's Internet access in order to show an ad. And net neutrality is a topic I'm, you know, we've covered a lot and, in, in, you know, all news sites have covered, so I'm not going to, you know, beat that drum again. But interesting thing here is that apparently it's in Utah and there was some law where they had to make um, some kind of filtering requirement, make their customers aware of that. And there really wasn't a way to mandate, or there really wasn't a, it wasn't mandated how they let their customers know because all that was really required is they could have just put it on the bill. They could have just had a sentence on the bill to let them know that this is available, um, that of their filtering software options. But they went a step further, and what they did instead was they actually um, stopped people's internet access and required them to click a link to restore their internet access. And the message that would come up was to let people know that, you know, you could you could buy our filtering software. So it was effectively an ad. Wow. So you have so in order to regain internet access, you have to click OK to acknowledge that you saw the ad, and then you get a message saying your internet service has been restored. So CenturyLink is basically saying, well, we by law, we had to do this because we have to make people aware of it. But then um, the senators are basically, or the state senator basically said, um, well, actually, you could have just put that in the bill. Nobody ever said you needed to put that or, or stop right. people's Internet access or anything like that. There's no requirement to block oh, access. Geez. So they, so the boneheads just totally um, proved why net neutrality is a very important thing. And of course, from what I understand here, it's looking like, I'm not 100% sure, but it's looking like they're trying to sell their own filtering software here. So My guess is there's, uh, there's usually an affiliate deal with that because that's when Best Buy was really huge on the Norton. 
Um, oh yeah. In, in, in some of the large companies do this. They're only allowed to sell the products because there's a brand deal with them that yep. they get a discount and a kickback, so to speak. So their affiliate sales, undoubtedly, there's the same thing going on with uh, CenturyLink. So for everyone that signs up, they undoubtedly get a commission on it. Being counters at the top certainly probably came that without the technical people at the bottom going, you know how horrible of an idea this is? <laughs> I've actually ran in. I've seen these messages before where you have to actually acknowledge a, a link to or click on a link to yeah. restore Internet access. It happened with Comcast Residential Service, which I, ha- I happily don't have anymore. But given yeah. the nature, I work from home and I'm doing IT consulting and all these things, uploading a lot of data. I was hitting the bandwidth cap pretty much every month, um, two months in a row, and it would just come up with a message in my browser, and it basically would want me to click on a link to restore access. The problem was, it was ex- I think it was expecting either ActiveX or some kind yes. of uh, thing that I don't have. So as a Linux user, I cannot acknowledge this. I have to call them and restore it. And then when I call them, if I use like a very small portion, I mean like less than 100 megabytes more, then I get the same message again, and then I have to keep calling, I have to keep calling, and then I just can't use my internet pretty much because I have to keep these getting these people on the phone. So I've seen this type of thing before with Comcast, so it's probably the same technology or yeah. style. And, well, AT&T CenturyLink. used to do this too, uh, to activate PPOE on your DSL modems years and years ago before they got rid of this. You used to have to load just a ton of AT&T software oh, no. on your computer to do yeah, it. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, boy. Yeah, so I'm glad that, that they finally activate them inside the modem, but you used to have to activate everything once it's activated you can uninstall it and it was just it was really annoying because it was very intrusive just a list of software it loaded it wasn't like one thing so yeah yeah you we've got actually better. interesting uh it's been a long time since i dealt with uh, dsl but my parents have dsl because they can't get anything else mm-hmm. and their provider has no authentication you just you turn off all kind of authentication you plug in any modem and it'll turn oh, it just on works. the internet yeah oh. They must have got sick of dealing with all the authentication problems with it. Because it's a, so. one of the most common uh, questions I have, and I have no way to answer it, and I may do a video saying why I can't answer the question. Apparently, um, it's not implemented universally the same in Europe. So everyone has constant problems when they want to get off of the cost, the modem provided by their provider because they can't get other firewalls to work with PPOE authentication. And I don't think the problem has to do with PFSense. I think the problem has to do with non-standard implementation of it. But I can't ever help troubleshoot it because I don't have any PPOE I can demo. And if I were Mm. to build a PPOE server, which actually is an option in PFSense, to have it act as a PPOE server, Mm. it's going to be standards-based, so it's going to work. So my video becomes completely useless at that point because people have Mm. uh, in Australia and uh, all over in Europe, they just have constant problems. They end up being double-natted because there's not an option. or we just worked with a Canadian client, their answer was to switch providers because they couldn't get uh, away from double natting. Provider would not allow public IP address at a business really? in Canada. He was in hmm. Quebec or Montreal, I can't remember. Hmm. But uh, we couldn't get the VPNs working because he insists on using Unify for VPN that doesn't have open VPN support, so it doesn't cut through double nat. It expects it, expects it all to have public IPs on each side of it to work. So, wow. <laughs> Yeah, the challenges of all that. Anyways, what else you got, Jay? That's that, all for that, me, actually. Was that one there. All right, we'll start with BYOB, but Build Your Own Botnet has a new version. Mm. Now, this is really great for security researchers, and I have a few friends that work in this market of uh, doing security, and we were joking before the show because some of them have done things like perhaps maybe even allegedly taken over someone else's botnet. Yeah. Um, 
it's a great learning tool to understand how botnets work. And the best way to defend against them is to get a better job of the, you know, inner workings of them. So this is an open source uh, toolkit for that. And, it, you know, once you start understanding how they're deployed, how they're working, uh, vectors of attack that were used, and you maybe take some insecure devices, put them in your lab and try to take them over. Um, and then you can look at all the ways to threat mitigate those things. Uh, it's, it's a great learning tool. It's a, I'm glad it's all open source. Uh, we need more and more people in the security industry. That's always what I've said. Um, mm -hmm. More people tinkering with this. So the more stuff that's open source and readily available for people to go, hey, I want to start playing with that. Um, yeah, we need we need more Tavis Orbandis out there. Like if you've ever followed him, we've talked to him a couple times. Oh, yeah, his name comes up a lot. Yeah, the guy is just a brilliant security researcher mm -hmm. at uh, Google who's really found some big holes in things. And so uh, feel free if you're interested in this. It's on GitHub. I'll have a link in the show notes. And for the namesake of the show, we have the Linux 420 kernels available. I linked to the uh, kernel mailing list archive where uh, Linus gave us this gift for Christmas uh, on December 23rd. So it's our early Christmas present from Linus. <laughs> is uh, the official release of the Linux 420 kernel offering, as we said, being to show some support for the Ryzen CPUs and some of the new features. And I believe there's some new uh, GPU support in there as well. It's like better enhancements uh, for that. You can go through all the details in there, but it's coming to a distro near you soon. Now, this was really cool news. Uh, in January, the EU running is going to start running bug bounties for free and open source software. This is, and I, I linked, um, if I'm, I don't know, they gave it a title. She's a politician, but who understands technology at, a, at like our level, which mm. we need more politicians like that. And they understand that so many things are built on open source, so the EU um, is funding the uh, bug tracking for it. So I believe they're brokering it all through HackerOne, uh, but they're going to be paying and putting money up for the bug bounties uh, for helping secure and code audit more open source projects. Um, I've always thought if there's tax dollars that are not wasted on dumb things, it's this. This is something that I think is a relevant thing yeah. um, because we all use it. The public benefits from it. Um, it's all open source. So any of these uh, fixes that come out of here benefits the greater community with better security and better code. So that's definitely cool. I love the article uh, she wrote on this. And it's, it's a great, I mean, this is a politician who understands why and got this set up and funded. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm looking at the page and it has start date and dates on these. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why are they posting like the first one starts in June? And I'm looking at the date. Well, in, in Europe, it goes day, month, oh, yeah. year instead of month, day, year. Yeah. So it's January 7th. I'm actually really used to that date format because all my scripts are uh, save files in that format, pictures, uh, videos, everything. So it just <laughs> shows chronologically properly if you look at the, you know, sorting by al alphanumerical. So, yeah, yeah I, you know, we're backwards here in America. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yep. Anyways, um, I have a link next to... Guardzilla IoT video camera hard-coded credentials and mm. not just the passwords, um, the buckets and all kinds of information. It's on a interesting site called Zero Day All Day, and it's a wonderful step-by-step. -step. It's a little bit of a not really long read, but it does all the breakdowns of exactly how they got through the system, what they did. Um, once again, if you're getting into any type of security research, this is great. Uh, the, the first thing that they noticed, though, is that the password, the shadow file, um, passwords, if you're not familiar with how they work on Linux, um, they're encoded in a shadow file and they're hashed. So you can't just look at the password. Um, hashing is a one-way system so you can make it hard to reverse engineer the password as long as you use good encryption. And we have deprecated 
encryption such as DES because uh, it mm-hmm. was deprecated in 2005 and that's where this venture starts. It turns out they were still using a 2005, mm. uh, some type of weird firmware. And this is a brand new cloud camera to save all your data in the cloud and be a security camera. And of course, it's another IoT disaster. Um, the company had no um, uh, security, no proper credentialing, and also no response from them. They're still selling their products or websites still live. Uh, they're ignoring it. I even tagged them in the Twitter post, like a lot of other people, that this company gave them three months to try to fix any of the vulnerabilities with new firmware. The company never replied. Mm. They still sell product, though. So <laughs> this is just going to be a bit more and more problem with IoT devices, um, with it being a race to market, not a race to security. We're, we're going to keep seeing these. People go, I want the cheapest cloud camera I can get. Well, we got one for you right here. You didn't say you wanted the best security cloud camera you can get, though, did you? Because <laughs> that's, eh, you know. Uh, so the audit confirmed this great Ars Techni article. Uh, no Chinese surveillance implants and supermicro boards. You got some explaining to do Bloomberg. Uh, this is just a big black eye for them. I thought the whole thing seemed bad from the beginning. I did a couple uh, in-depth. Even the person, the one person, they had 11 researchers that helped 11 anonymous sources. One of the sources that was named even came forward and said, yeah, they took my writings out of context. Uh, This was a plausible, they asked me if it was plausible if it could happen. So I said, if someone were to do this, this is what they needed to do. Not that they did it. That's There's two different scenarios. Um, And like many other people, even Krebs on security and other people had talked about, this is not, this is like the worst way to go around attacking this. Like this is the hard, you you pick the hardest way to do it. Um, So it just didn't, it, it, although possible, seemed very, very implausible to do it. Um, And of course there's the stock implementations of uh, Supermicro. They took a big stock hit because of this. It probably canceled orders, canceled shipment. Um, So it's really fuzzy what legal action will be taken. Um, But that's why they paid for an independent audit who found nothing. And you'd think we'd find something. We have enough people poking away at things and taking them apart that someone would have found something. Yeah. And uh, no one ever found anything. So in Bloomberg is not your you know, small time news organization. So it's interesting that they really stuck their neck out on this one. And it looks like, I don't know what the legal ramifications on her, but I think head should roll there. That's my opinion. This is just bad journalism uh, from a company that you just, you can't trust. I mean, and they were people who have done previous good articles on in-depth things related to tech. These aren't amateurs. These are people with a good track history, with a good journalistic history. So uh, it's interesting to see that it was all bunk. And uh, But yeah, it's just a big black eye in the media again. 20 open source accounting options. And I'm going to say 21 because I uh, also leave a link to Scrooge Accounting is the only one I didn't see in there, uh, which I noticed it not being in there because it's one of the ones I'm just taking a look at. I've used, and it is in the list, KMyMoney for years to run my company's ledgers. Oh, yeah. That I love, me back. Yeah. I love KMyMoney. Um, it allows me to download. We have two bank accounts for my business. We download QIF files. KMyMoney I went with because it supports that. And some of these do have some import options. Uh, KMyMoney is just a very robust one. It'll import stock portfolios. It'll import bank accounts. Mm. Um, so, And I have an entire uh, review video on exactly our accounting process, how we uh, run the business here because we're using open source software and KMI Money is one of the few capable programs of doing it and so is Scrooge that's why I'm looking at it and the cool thing about the Scrooge people is they brag about their importability of things they do have QIF import but they also have KMI Money import so they actually mm-hmm. allow you to move from another platform uh, so that's why I wanted to add them in the list but there's there's a lot of good options out there uh, what wasn't mentioned and I've done reviews on as well is Invoice Ninja it's 
but that's more for invoicing rather than accounting. Um, but there's some of these that are complete packages that support inventory, invoicing, accounting, and ledger, and they're all open source. So if you're trying to get away from the QuickBooks, uh, which many people are, um, there's options out there. And they're actually not average. These are really nice. They're not like as I'm sorry, GNU Cash, you're kind of ugly because yeah. it's if you try to send it to an accountant, even accountants didn't like GNU Cash. They said yeah. this this is not robust enough. But some of these are really nice. Have really nice web-enabled dashboards. Support multi-user, multiple companies, um, all web interfaced, and so there's some really cool options if you're looking at accounting on there. I thought that was pretty cool. And we talked about it before, but uh, this time it's a review from Fosbytes. It's the System76 Thelio. So we did bring it up in the last show, but Fosbytes did a little bit more of uh, in-depth review of it as well. And, you know, there's more market excitement built around System76. They're a popular company. Jay's been out there. Uh, yeah. I'm still running their Pop! OS. They just do a great job of it. And, you know, I'm looking at Jay's System76 laptop that he's reading his show notes on right yeah. now. So. <laughs> Yeah, uh, very. We've always had great things. The company's a big, you know, open source supporter. They're uh, community engaged, and uh, they make good products. So it's always nice to read to some other positive reviews about them. And we're hoping to get our hands on some of the laptops. So if you're listening, System Twenty Six, you know my address. <laughs> yep, I'm trying to. I'm trying to get a Thelio desktop in here. No, no guarantee that I'll be successful because we haven't received a response yet. But you never know. Mm-hmm. Um. Open source document management. So this has come up as a topic um, every now and then with businesses, and it's been a little while since I've actually deployed this, but it's still um, alive and actively being updated and keeps getting better, is OpenDocMan. I just want to bring it up because uh, sometimes you're looking for a way to manage. Some businesses are, if you're in real estate, if you're in, uh, or I used to work in the transportation market, there's, there's ISO standards for documentation. There's tons of documents you need to have, and you need to be able to organize all those documents. And they're not always ones that were easily uh, just produced, so you need to like upload PDFs and things like that that are for policies and organize them so you can find them later, not just have a bunch of file folders. And that's where Open Open Document can help with all that, um, help track revisions of documents. It's, it's a pretty robust open source document management. So if you work in that industry and you're looking for a way to organize a lot of data, it's not like Nextcloud or something like that where you're actually producing the data and saving it. It's a document management system to, for as you deal in the corporate world a large volume of documents you need to find all right where's the schematic that was for building three (laughs) right so it's a little bit different but it's kind of a niche that people run into i'll also uh, leave some gaming news as the last one uh the new tux cart racing is pretty cool looking so uh tux cart's been around forever and uh I remember it was probably one of the first games my kids played because they used to have a Linux box forever ago, and I had TuxCart on there. So yeah. they, they like another cart one <laughs> that is really popular, and that's kind of what TuxCart's modeled after. Yep. Uh, but it's I've got to admit the graphics <laughs> in the new TuxCart are pretty amazing. They're, they've come a long way from the old releases. They've come a long, long way. So. I'm looking at their source code right now. I'm on their their GitHub. It's fascinating. It's it's just um, one of those things that I wish I, I was more I had more time to be involved in because a project like this especially someone like me that is an enthusiast programmer it's just a great opportunity to see source code on a real project and and help out and i think that's going to help them because they're trying really hard to make this a 
an amazing product. Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool one too. And of course, combine that with the new Linux kernel and the better driver support, you can get Tux running in 3D with lots of graphics and lots of fun. It's a fun game though too. Because mm-hmm. who doesn't like a little basic racing game where you ride around a penguin in a cart? I mean, <laughs> just you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong with that. It's a it's a great break when you're done facepalming and all the security issues and the IoT attacks and and the bomb spammers. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, just, just want to play some games now. You just want to go offline and play games. <laughs> So that's actually a, a, a minor annoyance I've always liked about Linux games and not liked some of the other ones. Uh, when the internet's gone down, some games, because they constantly want to talk to activation servers, even mm-hmm. phone games are like this now. Um, you can't yep. play them when the, if you don't have service. So like when I'm up north, I'm like, oh, I'll play a game on my phone. Oh, I can't because it needs yep. to talk to an activation server. My phone yeah. is offline right now. I can't even use it. It's useless. <laughs> yeah, that, but they usually result in really bad reviews. I'm a big Final Fantasy fan, and some of those games, mobile versions, actually do have a check that every now and then they have to be online to make sure it's a valid uh, install or whatever. And if you look at the reviews, it's like people are slamming them, not because the game is of bad quality. It's because, just like you said, they're in a situation where they... Um, you know, have some leisure time and they want to spend it playing a game and then they find that they can't. Nothing is more infuriating than that. And making your customers angry is not good business. So I understand you need to make sure people aren't pirating, but at the same time, you know, people are playing your games to, you know, have fun and they don't want to be bothered with that. Well, and and Microsoft got slapped in the face really hard um, when they had all the new Xbox they, they just didn't – internally, they kind of said, we just didn't see this coming. Um, when they had all this online activation, they're like, okay, whatever. And me and you were probably going, oh, it's an Xbox. It does that. And the military go, uh, hey, we're hanging out in Afghanistan, and you know what we have? Free time. When we have free time, right. we like to play. You know what we don't have? Internet. <laughs> yeah. And it, uh, they said this was uh, – it was like a small military protest. or like, you know, we need some uh, zone-out time. <laughs> like, some people don't have stable internet either. No. Some people don't have live. stable internet. Um, and there was a whole other group of petitioned people that operate on subs. Like, you know, once you go so deep, there's not internet either. And when you're hanging out in a sub and you have some time off, you like to uh, play a little Xbox. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so there was a big pushback for uh, Microsoft too. So it's definitely an issue. And these open source games are great. You know, Super Tux Cart, you know, you don't have to worry about that. And then some of my, sta- my staples that are in a similar vein that they're in every repository, Frozen Bubble. Frozen Bubble's great. favorite games for Linux ever. Probably the best in my opinion. Yeah. Then there's um, Chromium BSU, which is a really great shooter. If you look at yep. shoot, shoot 'em up games, uh, space shoot 'em up games, that one's a really good one as well. There's also uh, there's a couple games that are I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's basically kind of like a Doom clone and stuff like that that I liked. Uh, that's open yeah. source. It had, it had Alien Arena's one. Alien Arena's one of them. That's the one yeah. I think I was thinking of. Um, Nexweez, if I'm even say, saying that right, I don't know if that's still a thing. I haven't played that in a while. Some of them. Um, it's unfortunate because there's not many players anymore online, so there's not anybody to play with. But we've played local games. Me and my son have played them a couple times. Because even though it's an older game, so it runs on my laptop, which doesn't really have a good graphics card in it. So, mm. yeah, we you know that you know we've never done Tony a fresh looks Linux gaming. Yeah. That, yeah, there's an idea. If there's an interest for that, I'd love to be a part. I of I think it there too. is. Um, you, oh yeah, there's always people out there interested in doing gaming. There's an entire channel, um, the uh, the Linux gamer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's yep. got a great YouTube channel. He's a really nice guy. I've talked. I think you've met him in person. I've met him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's got a channel dedicated, so you, you can even have him, have him on as a guest. It's one of my favorite uh, channels, actually. Yeah, he he does a great job of reviewing. He's not specifically open source games, but games running on Linux. Yep. Yeah, definitely should. So, all right, we'll table the gaming discussion. We'll go off on a tangent on it, but 
That's definitely Linux. Mm-hmm. Linux gaming. Let us know, listeners. Do you want to? Should we do an entire episode on that? So yeah, there's some challenges with it, but there's there's a lot of fun to be had there. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times that's your excuse for having a Windows computer. That's well, why with, I could, with I Proton, it's not one. really required anymore. It's, Proton has worked great for me. Like I, I used to buy this. I know we're not wanting to have too much gaming discussion, but um, I was using um, Crossover from. Uh, well, I forgot the name of the company that made it, but anyway, the crossover program you install on Ubuntu lets you run Windows apps, and I was using that to run Skyrim, not Skyrim, the new edition, the enhanced edition, but the original, because you can't run the enhanced edition on crossover, but I was able to run the um, new edition of Skyrim on Proton, on mm-hmm. Linux. It just worked. I was, I was blown away. It, it worked great, actually, even better than crossover. Nice. So I think I think it's happening. We're in the right um, stretch right now because Proton allows for the compatibility. It's not 100%, but I think it's better than any um, solution I've seen so far mm-hmm. already. Yeah, so there's there's options. You can finally ditch Windows. Yep. Yeah. Well, my kids still won't because they use a bunch of EA game stuff. Some of their games yeah. don't run in Steam, and they just have. There is no Linux. Like my There's daughter plays uh, the Bl- Sims. The Blizzard so. games are another Those example. Two. Yeah, right. she likes the Sims, and I forget what other game they play. But there's another one. I, I just there's no. It doesn't run Linux. I got it. I got Diablo three to run via crossover. As long as you don't have multiple monitors. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, well, I guess that brings us to the end. All right. Well, yeah, we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, you have been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This was episode 297. Yep. Linux 4.20 Compile It. That's great. Uh, This is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Jay LaCroix. All right. See you guys next time. See ya. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can... Bite my 8-bit metal ass! That's bite with a Y.